Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. We have today with us also Molly Quell. She's a correspondent for Courthouse News, and she's covering all the trials here and in Strasbourg and in Luxembourg. She was with me this week when we were covering a big case at the ICTY slash MICT. I, R, M, C, T, etc. Yeah, you, you guys had this milestone ruling, as is described in journalese, at the... Also by the judge. The presiding judge also described it as a milestone. At the place that is the successor institution to the Yugoslav Tribunal, and it has a very long title, which is United Nations Residual Mechanism for the International Criminal Tribunals. We tend to call it the MICT or the Mechanism. And they came up with this definitive verdict in the very, very, very final case before this court that was dealing with the wars that tore apart the Yugoslav Federal Republic in the 1990s. And uh, the verdict was memorable also because it is the first time that Serbian state officials have been definitely convicted for crimes committed by Serb-backed militia on the ground in neighboring Bosnia. So it's the direct link between... Serbian state and war crimes in Bosnia, which has eluded the tribunal so far. And who were these guys? I know that their names begin with S and S. I think it's Stanisic and Simatovic. Yeah, so these guys are uh, Jovica Stanisic, who is the head of the Serbian intelligence agency and his like subordinate called Franko Simatovic, whose nickname was Frankie, and uh, who liked to run around in a leather jacket and basically be uh, a dog's body uh, and run uh, militias. Could you describe them as Serbian septuagenarian spooks? Yes, you could. Now in their 70s, they are indeed the former spy masters at the time when they were running the Serbian intelligence agency in the 1990s. They set up their own paramilitary unit within Serbian state security uh, organs. They called that the unit that had two branches. One turned into the Red Berets. Uh, for those Yugo fanatics like me, you will know them from the assassination of the Serbian president uh, and also for atrocities in Bosnia. Um, and they had the other part of the unit turned into Arkans Tigers, which is also a very, very uh, infamous paramilitary unit, one of the most infamous, the only reason why Arkan, who is the leader of this paramilitary unit, was never before the court, is that he was actually a big criminal when he was gunned down in the lobby of a Belgrade hotel before he could ever be extradited. Yeah, we covered these some um, paramilitary uh, organizations before, haven't we? We did a podcast called Dogs of War with Eva Vukasic, who's a researcher working in this field and works at um, the University of Utrecht. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. And then also, didn't we also cover them when we did, when the first verdict came down against them, the first time that they went back into courts, this they, that was called Balkan Spies, and that was with Maria Ristich and uh, Eva again. So why have we got Molly and not Eva? Where's Eva? Eva is very busy with her teaching gig at Utrecht University and currently educating the minds of students in Utrecht. And so while she very much regrets that you couldn't be with us, she did record an audio message for us. And we asked her to talk about the importance of this case and also kind of 
uh, significance for her personally in being there at the court. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Here I am reflecting a few hours after the judgment in the last ICTY slash residual mechanism uh, case. I have to say it's still early. Uh, the, the judgment just came out today, so I haven't uh, read it yet. But what can I say about how important this ruling uh, is? Well, one thing that I would say is that it's important because this is really the first time that the Serbian state security and then by extension the Serbian state um, has been linked to a number of uh, uh, crimes in at least one place in Croatia in 1991 and several municipalities in Bosnia and Herzegovina between 1992 and 1995. So, so far all of the, the cases sort of ended up being about local authorities, the Serbs in Croatia and the Serbs in Bosnia and Herzegovina. This is really the first time that we see the Serbian state officials convicted for uh, uh, crimes in several municipalities. The, the second thing that is also really important and that is tied to that is the joint criminal enterprise finding. So in the um, first instance judgment, it was only about this one town, Bosnski Shamac, and now on appeal, um, the judges basically ruled that there was a joint criminal enterprise so that these crimes were not just some sort of unfortunate, uh, you know, series of events or something kind of incidental. The joint criminal enterprise means that there was kind of a systematic and planned nature to these actions. So those are, um, I think, two reasons why um, it is very, very important Another thing that I think is also notable is, of course, the length of the proceedings. So these are two separate trials, but the entire legal saga lasted for 20 years, uh, pretty much. That is remarkable. I don't know of any other international uh, trial here in The Hate that lasted longer. Um, and I think um, it's really, a le there's a lesson in there. And I think it's really problematic, both for the victims, but also for the accused, they also have the right to finality and to be, you know, part of a legal process like this for 20 years. I think, you know, future institutions should learn some lessons from this and, and try to do it differently. How did I personally experience uh, the, the, the ruling uh, after this many years of dealing with these things? I tried to not have a lot of personal feelings about the outcomes. So on the one hand, I am, you know, pleased, I guess, and, and, and sort of I'm happy to see the tribunal uh, end its, its work. So, you know, it's, it's really, I would say, our most successful international tribunal. And, and in some ways, I'm really, you know, glad to, to have been here to, to witness its end, even though, of course, technically it's the residual mechanisms work and not the tribunal, but I consider them sort of one and the, the, the same uh, thing. And on the other hand, it was also, I was just thinking, it's a little bit like a high school reunion. Uh, I saw many friends today, people that, you know, we've seen each other age uh, watching these uh, trials together. So there's also just kind of very personally, there's a certain sadness to me about the, the ending as well. It's really an end of an era. I've spent pretty much 20, 20 years of my life uh, in and around the tribunal, and I will really uh, miss it. So, yeah, I guess these are some of my initial reactions. Thanks for asking, ladies. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, that's so nice to actually get Eva into the podcast and to she covered a lot of ground uh, stuff there. So let's pick up the, the last part. How did you feel about this uh, sort of everybody on a reunion? 
I mean, there's a bit of a not, a, not a huge age difference between Stephanie and I, but there is an age difference there. And the first ICTY quote unquote trial that I covered was their, I think, I think retrial, which was already at the mechanism. I mean, I wasn't doing this work in 2017 when the ICTY was wound down. But it really did have that atmosphere of people recognizing each other from the past. Yeah, it felt a little, I had like a weird fever dream this morning, which I, we don't need to go into the details about, but clearly it was like my brain processing some like feeling like I'm not part of the group activities. And I think that some of this came into play. Like everybody there knows each other. There was like a lot of hugging and like people saying hello and like Steph couldn't get through the security line because people kept like pulling her out of line to like say hi to her and stuff. It was the same with Eva. And I don't have any of this. So it was kind of interesting to see. I mean, I think it's always fascinating with these things where like you are seeing colleagues and you're sort of excited. I mean, Eva said, right, that she's going to miss the tribunal. But like, it's a bit odd to sort of have this framing for something that's like fundamentally like pretty terrible, you know, human suffering that sort of like underpins this. It's like a fascinating dynamic. But there is that balance that I heard in what Eva had to say. And I think we all have. Maybe you would feel it as well, Steph, that okay, it's kind of nice to see people again. But the conscious, like this trial has gone on too long for the accused, for the victims, et cetera, et cetera. Just Steph, can you outline why it was such a long process? Well, it's one of the big reasons is that they were arrested in 2003 after all kinds of Serbian political changes that made it possible for these people who had been protected uh, basically by the whole state apparatus system of Serbia to be finally uh, extradited to The Hague. And the trial started in 2007, but then initially they were acquitted because that was at a time which is also a super interesting time in like Yugoslav tribunal history when they also tried Croatian generals and that got a lot of pushback from Croatia. And there was a kind of movement of making it harder for people higher up the chain of command to be kind of held responsible for what subordinates did. Also, because this was the time of like military engagement and uh, of other countries and the US and the UK were starting to look at these trials like, oh, we might also have soldiers that might be doing things that are maybe not entirely in line with international law. Like, could we then also have these uh, commands? So there was even, a, a, I think, a Swedish judge. Was it a Swedish judge or a Danish judge? Danish judge, I think, who, who wrote a letter complaining about like the American influence in the tribunal that they uh, let these people off the hook, the kind of higher ups and the military chain of command be out of pressure from uh, the Americans was the idea at the time. So we that don't know. never never proved. It's never I mean, proved. Is yeah, this so trial this is suggesting that kind of that was reversed and therefore they did a retrial? I mean, well, the, they were acquitted in, in first instance because it was uh, ruled that they didn't have any, like, couldn't... No personal link. Yeah, couldn't have a personal link to the crimes. And that was that was uh, overturned on appeal. And then it was sent for retrial because they said they made grave legal errors in concluding some things. And so that pushed... That's already... Then you have the first trial takes a couple of years, then the appeal takes a couple of years, and then all of a sudden you're in 2015 when that gets reversed, and then they have to be retried. 
And then it takes a long time in the end for the appeal. Yeah, but even the trials were long. So I think the appeal, the retrial started in 2017, but the retrial had to be done by the MICT. So there was also the closing up of the, the like wrapping up of the tribunal in between and trying to figure out how you would have this retrial in the successor mechanism. And then from 2017 to 2021 was the initial case where they got convicted, but as Eva also explained, they got convicted only for crimes in Bosnia in one particular place where actual uh, people from the unit that was set up by the Serbian Interior Ministry committed crimes and for aiding and abetting. So they were, by training these people, giving them money, and there's also uh, there's this famous footage of Simatovic showing up at like training for these people and saying, like, kind of go get them boys type of thing. But... On appeal and the prosecution wanted this, they wanted to show that they had wider support for also other uh, Serbian militias in other towns. And so the thing that they're talking about here is something that we don't hear so much about in the Bosnian war is that we talk about ethnic cleansing, but then uh, for the ethnic cleansing period in, in the beginning of the war, what really stands out for everybody are the camps in Priedor, Omarska, Keracerm, those, those things. But in uh, eastern Bosnia, which later became infamous over Srebrenica massacre, but that part of Bosnia was also ethnically cleansed. And all these towns that they're talking about, Serbian paramilitaries came from over the border to fight with Bosnian Serbs and mm -hmm. drive out people from their towns. So there's uh, these guys are now also convicted for crimes in Zvornik, Bijeljina. Those are all kind of border towns where they're easily reachable by crossing a river and showing up and they were aiding like the local authorities in driving people out. And you were writing about this for some different audiences. What was the thing, Molly, that you wanted to emphasize? What do you think was the thing that you think is most interesting for people to know? I mean, I think the Serbian state connection, I think, was kind of the big sort of positive maybe takeaway from this. This is what Serge Brim. Bramitz was talking about, the chief prosecutor for the mechanism, was talking about afterwards that like there is this connection with Serb state officials and therefore like sort of the Serb state to the stuff that was like happening in Bosnia and Croatia. Um, and I think that like the there was these, you know, this group of women, the mothers of Srebrenica, who have been at every hearing that I've been at. One of them was also speaking afterwards and was sort of emphasizing how important it was that there was a connection with the Serbian state. But I think mostly what was like kind of fascinating is how long this thing took. Like going back to your point, Janet, I interviewed um, Wayne Jordash afterwards, one of the defense lawyers, and he had this very good quote about how, you know, an expeditious trial is a, you know, a fundamental human right. And nobody thinks that 20 years, I mean, these guys were arrested in 2003 it is now 2023. Like, this is an absurd amount of time to have people be sort of hanging under the stress of this, these proceedings. And I think there's some interesting discussion to be had about, like, where does the line fall between protecting the rights of defendants and their families to have closure and, in fact, you know, protecting the rights of the victims to have justice? And I think that we haven't really answered these questions. And I don't think that this case is a very good example of, like, justice in that way. No, no, I think it's very problematic. And not only, you know, obviously, indeed, fair and expeditious trial is a human right, and every defendant should get one. And it's also the best defense against kind of arguing that the tribunal is wrong or biases if you have a really vigorous defense. And if you have a good defense, I think what Eva also said, also for the victims, for people who are looking 
uh, at these things. Uh, the mothers of Srebrenica who've been showing up to the same case for 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 twenty years, and, and the people who are in these places that they're actually convicted for, they don't get closure. They also had to deal with this twenty years of this trial, and it, I don't think it does anybody any favors to have cases go on for so incredibly long. Yeah, we've been discussing you know revictimization a lot with the you know with Ukraine, right? Where like you know you have somebody who's been sexually assaulted, and they're interviewed by Ukrainian authorities, and then ten thousand foreign media, and then the ICC, and then NGOs, and all of this stuff. I mean, there is a similar argument to be made about. You know, now you had to have all these witnesses testify at the first trial, and now 10, 15 years later, they got to come back to do the second one. I mean, these people are getting older. This like trip is not necessarily easy. Like, I think there's a real question about, yeah, what is justice in this sense? So we've got a number of lessons that uh, kind of been learnt out of this potentially. But uh, what do you think, Steph? When you look um, your current job, mainly covering the ICC, what, what do you take away? What I take away is that I really started covering international law in 2001 when I started doing the ICTY. So I learned on the job. So I have no legal training. Uh, I am not. I have not trained as a lawyer. And all the stuff that I know started with learning these ICTY cases little by little. And so what I think that even if you don't really care about the former Yugoslavia or that whole conflict, if you're now looking at the ICC, so much of what the ICC is doing is built on the ICTY and the ICTR, the Rwanda Tribunal, and these decisions get referred to like there is not an ICC case that I have followed that has not referenced the ICTY or decisions uh, in this case. So there was an idea of international law, but really the practice of, of prosecuting crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide has been completely kind of crystallized with these two tribunals. And by learning about what happened there, you can see how these things go and how it influences what happens at the ICC and how, you know, that whole story of the the chain of command uh, looking, going up, finding linkage witnesses that we talk about all the time. The first time that they really realize that that's how you should do it is at the ICTY. The whole uh, story we have now with Ukraine, when you're looking at attacks on uh, civilian infrastructure and the problems with linking that to direct people, but also the the problems with when is something civilian infrastructure and when is it uh, potentially a legitimate military target. You know, there is uh, mountains of jurisprudence and most of it comes from the ICTY. So, so it's still really worthwhile keeping an eye on now yeah. it's closed. What are you going to look at now? I don't know. Like maybe I'm going to be one of those sad people that like rewatches old ICTY cases. You're like Rito watching old parliamentary debates. Exactly. Um, I mean, it turns out that while the tribunal has wrapped up, uh, war crimes and genocide and crimes against humanity have not ceased to exist. So there appears to be plenty of work for us to do, unfortunately. There is. And, and I think it's still all the stuff that I learned on the job makes me thankfully very useful to my editors where I'm one, I'm going to be one of those eccentric old ladies that, you know, in 20 years from now, and they have some case where they say, this is the first time. And then I'm going, no, hold on. <laughs> Once before the ICTY, yeah. <laughs> we had a similar case and the name is X because yeah. I also catch myself now where I think I was looking with, there is one trial still ongoing for the mechanism for the Rwandan uh, genocide suspect, Kabuga. 
and he will most likely be declared unfit to stand trial, I expect, uh, because he seems to have dementia. As he is an octogenarian? As he is a septagenarian? An octogenarian, yes. And I can, off the top of my head, name cases before the ICTY and names of suspects that were declared unfit to yeah. stand trial for us. He's reason. not the first. No. He's not the first. And and I know the names of these cases and I've reported on them. And so, it's, so that for me is a very useful uh, background. And in that's, it gave me this career. The, essentially, the ICTY gave me this career and this podcast. So I forever will like that building, even though I am not going to be unhappy that I don't have to go and report there anymore in a building that has no, not even a snack machine. I'm very grateful for stuff, having all this knowledge because it's, it's better than having Wikipedia. You can just ping somebody on WhatsApp and then get this whole goddamn diatribe about everything. (laughs) And it's perfect. That's why we call her (laughs) Stephopedia. Well, one thing that really strikes me, despite all of the words that we've just come out with and all of the description is what actually was the result, Molly? I mean, is that really the most important thing I think that we're taking away from yesterday? Um, so both of these guys had been convicted uh, in the second first instance round um, and sentenced to 12 years uh, in jail. And the convictions were sort of extended um, in that they were found responsible were found to be involved in a joint criminal enterprise instead of just aiding and abetting, and that the crimes, the underlying crimes, the, were expanded um, sort of both in geographic scope and time, and their sentences were extended from 12 years to 15. Both of them are in their 70s, 72 and 73, I think their ages are. And so, but they won't spend any time in jail? They? Well, they have a remaining... So the time, we were doing the math yesterday, they have spent some amount of time in custody already, so that time will be deducted off. And I think we sort of came out to seven and a half years for one guy and five for the other. And then there's this two-thirds rule about how you can apply for sort of early release. So when I spoke to um, Wayne Jordash yesterday, he thought that maybe Danishish would spend another two, two and a half years in prison. So let's wrap this up with uh, asking you the main question, Uh-oh. Molly, which is, what have you been reading? What have I been reading? Watching, Finally, someone asks me. Or listening to anything that you would like to share about. for this. Um, I have been reading... Anthony Beaver's History of the Second World War, which is about 9,000 bajillion pages long, and I find very fascinating and I think is very good. He's a sort of famous historian who's written a bunch of books, and his most famous one is about Stalingrad, the sort of history of kind of, yeah, Russian, Russia as a concept, I think. And the other thing I have been reading is My Life as a Rat by Joyce Carol Oates, which I'm enjoying, but is... I think I'm probably 20% of the way in and it's already like so incredibly depressing that I would not advertise it as a summer read. I think you got to go find something else because it's, it's real upsetting. I've been watching uh, bit by bit, I'm trying to do daily, Timothy Snyder's uh, History of Ukraine. Oh. These are a series of lectures that uh, he did just after the invasion over uh, a year ago, which um, his colleagues at Yale recorded. And it's a, I don't know, 20, 30 sort of hour long thing. And it just bit by bit. And um, I know we're joking about you being Stephopedia, but really, you know, Ukrainopedia. Yeah. 
when you hear all the different references that he brings in. And just the first three lectures were about sort of the nature of history and what we need to think about when we think about history. And then he starts off, you know, in the precursor to the pre-Middle Ages. And I've just got to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which is where I'm living at the moment. So I'm really interested to hear how that relates to Ukraine because it all does, it's all interconnected. And then I'll keep on going on that. What about you, Steph? Have you got uh, a book that you've been reading? Well, on the train here, I was listening to another history podcast, which I like the rest is history. Uh, they now There's have two a, British guys, two British, British guys who take oh. all kinds of different subjects. Exactly. And now it's the history of Ireland. And they have a wonderful guest who speaks in a wonderful Irish accent about Irish history, which is just like, oh, I'm totally there for that. Wonderful. Speak Irish to me. But also I learned today that where the word boycott comes from, because it is yeah. uh, an Irish, I think, Captain, Captain Boycott, Captain boycott, boycott. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, uh, and they didn't want to pay him. So then it got boycotting. So I was like, that's what it is. Uh, so I was very grateful for that podcast. But I also want to say to our readers who are interested by the ICTY and 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 our whole chat about Stanisys and Simatovic that... If you want to support this podcast, over on Patreon, we have our book club. And for this book club, uh, this month, we've read Julian Borger's The Butcher's Trail, which is basically about the uh, whole tracking down of ICTY fugitives and the trials and ev all the politics behind that. And it's super interesting. And it's a way to support us because we love doing this podcast. And of course, any anything that will have me on where I can talk endlessly about the ICTY, you know, I will do for absolutely free. But we also want to support Margarita, who has to edit all of this endless rambling and my yoga really? nostalgia together. Really? Do you like together. to talk about the ICTY stuff? No, I haven't I no, noticed. No, never heard really? that. Never. No. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to... The ICTY has finished. It stopped. It's over. But we will come back to it. The, legacy, I promise. the legacy, legacy will be with us always. I can always. talk about it for hours. Like, uh, there's a reason I started this podcast, guys. I need to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> anyway, right. thank you very much, Steph, for the recommendations. And thanks, Molly, for joining in. <laughs> thanks for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Oh, and find us on patreon.com. You can look for asymmetrical haircuts uh, for as little as a few dollars or euros a month you can support us if you don't want to be tied down by monthly payment you can also look for our tip jar on the website on the how to support us page everything goes directly to margarita and possibly sometimes also to cookies while we record but we haven't done that yet so that's the plan for next time this was asymmetrical haircuts your international justice podcast created and presented by janet anderson and stephanie van den berg Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>